B-movie auteur, king of the schlock, call him what you want, but John Carpenter has carved himself a very singular reputation and a status as one of Hollywood's most inventive, if not critically successful, directors. On this episode, we will be discussing a broad swathe of work from his most successful and influential period to date, which is to say the mid-70s to late-80s. I am Craig Eastman, and I am joined, as always, by Scott Morris. Well, hello there. And Drew Tavendale. Hello. We are all very tired and none of us trust each other. <laughs> so um, let's start the discussion and we're going to go through this chronologically. Let us start the discussion with Assault on Precinct 13, which uh, if not Carpenter's first full feature was certainly his first to receive a wide release, I think I'm correct in saying. Scott, what saith ye? Yes, uh, Dark Star being effectively a kind of extended student film kind of deal. Something like uh, that. Yes, Assault on Precinct 13 uh, sees Austin Stoker's California Highway Patrol Officer, Lieutenant Ethan Bishop's day get increasingly problematic from a seemingly easy starting point. He's asked to oversee the final day's activities of closing down an old police precinct that's moving elsewhere from its current anti-salubrious environs of a rough LA ghetto. It has a skeleton staff, a desk sergeant and two administrators, Laurie Zimmer's lead and Nancy Loomis's Julie, but spoilers, staffing levels are about to be further reduced. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the prison transfer bus has to make an emergency pit stop when an inmate falls ill, bringing Darwin Johnson's enigmatic convicted murderer Napoleon Wilson and fellow near-dwell Tony Burton's Wells to the party, along with some other characters that we shouldn't get too attached to. Furtherly, meanwhile, uh, in the aftermath of a police action that saw six gang members gunned down, said gangs are out for blood, seemingly at random picking an ice cream van chappy and, as part of an extreme no-witnesses policy, the young girl that he was serving. Her distraught father gives chase and manages to take out his daughter's killer, but the numbers are not in his favour and he flees, shell-shocked, to the precinct, pursued by an embarrassment of gangsters intent on getting him and anyone that gets in the way. The shock of the first wave of attacks is repelled, but at the cost of, well, everyone not named previously. And so the cops and criminals must band together to survive until help arrives, if indeed it will, with the communications and the electricity cut. And, well, that's more or less your lot, which is normally a point where I'd say it doesn't sound like an awful lot to hang a film from, and I guess it isn't, but for once that's a positive rather than a negative. Uh, the simplicity turns out to be a strength, allowing time to focus on the tension and the characters. Uh, it's the interplay between Stoker and Josen that sells the film, in particular the hints at unravelling what's going on with Napoleon Wilson. For all his tough guy quips and demeanour, he's no crazed killer. Even if the script is hanging multiple light shades on it, it's still one of the brightest lights in the movie. It helps that that carpenter boy knows how to shoot a shootout with the back half of the movie in particular being a great combination of ratchety tension and kinetic release. It goes without saying that this holds up very well today and is at least in the running for being Carpenter's best film. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I would yeah. this this would be down as one of one of two contenders for favourite Carpenter film for me. Um it succeeds uh, massively on I, I, such a slim premise. I often see this described as a remake of Rio Bravo, but I've never seen Rio Bravo. So I can't <laughs> I can't <laughs> I can't speak to that. But I think Assault on Precinct 13 is possibly the first sort of siege movie that I ever encountered at a, a, a relatively tender age and it is one of the very formative sort of experiences that I had in movie going outside of uh, mainstream cinema fair uh, catching this on uh, it would have been BBC2 on Movie Drome or something with uh, with Alex Cox on a on a, a, late, a late late night showing uh, of sort of cult movies, and it had a huge influence uh, over 
future future tastes that I would develop, and also, I suppose this was the point at which my nascent critical faculties were were beginning to um, beginning to flourish, and I just have I've been listening to another podcast recently uh, where guests are sort of interviewed with a with a, a set group of questions recently. And this is one of those movies where I think if you pose the question, what would you show someone to try and describe, who didn't know what cinema was, to try and describe what cinema was? I think this is one of those movies that does everything with such efficiency that it's it's one of the sort of purest technical examples of how what a good film is and how a good film works. But that I, I suspect I'm not alone in feeling that way, um, but... Sorry, I'm rambling now. <laughs> yeah, um, efficiency is exactly the word I was going to use, Craig. It is, it's taut, it's lean, and it's efficient. It's only like a 90-minute film, and even then it still manages to find moments of where not a lot is happening, but just allows for the tension to build in the next sequence. Mm. And it's just a wonderfully clinically delivered film. It doesn't have to give like much backstory in the characters or anything. It's all about how the characters act rather than what they've done yeah. in the past. And nobody is doing anything outrageous. Nobody's doing anything particularly stupid. The only issue I've ever had character-wise is when one of the two women that work there wants to hand over the guy who came running in and brought the gang with him immediately. I'm like, mm. yeah, not so much. You, you work at a police station. You should be aware that, that you're meant to protect people and you can't blame yeah. this man for being chased. But beyond that, other, the characters seem like reasonable people. And the, um, Napoleon Wilson in particular, it would be so easy for him to... I kept, I mean, The first time I watched this, I kept expecting him to turn on them. I was mm-hmm. expecting him to betray them because, well, he's this multiple killer, right? That That's that's how that would go in any other film. And it doesn't because, mm. you, know, you know what... I've got my, maybe a murderer, but I've got my own set of values. Mm. And also I realised that my um, survival probably is tied in with other people's, even though they're police people. It's it's quietly got a lot to say about the American (laughs) justice system. One of the things I love most about this movie is that the character's great success is that they they make it through, I mean, you know, a, a number of them make it through the siege and I don't think it's ruining it. If you haven't seen the movie at this point, Napoleon is, is one of the characters. Years. Yeah, you've had 42 <laughs> years. Napoleon Napoleon is one of the characters who makes it through the siege. But for him, that's great. He's he survived the movie, but he's still on his way to death row. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, there's a sort of very quiet dignity there that... Um, The great asset this movie has is its focus is purely on what are the elements I need to tell the story I want to tell. And backstory is hinted at in certain characters, but it is not not handed to you on a plate. You are given enough to make it difficult not to sympathise with characters that you might otherwise not want to sympathise with. There is a huge economy in character, but enough to make you question your perception of who someone is at face value Mm -hmm. and the other thing that it does remarkably well that I can't think of another film that actually at all that does it this well is that The Menace which a a lot of um, in a lot of ways this is a horror movie right? Yeah, there may as well be zombies with guns, yeah Yeah, exactly. By all accounts, it's pretty much a horror movie, even though it's not a slasher movie. It would would be billed and marketed as as a thriller, but it's it's as good as a horror movie. And it does this this wonderful thing of the... 
antagonists in the movie are these, for the most part, faceless, apart from the start of the movie. They're completely anonymous and they never really, they never speak. They have no dialogue. We're never we're never 100% clear on who they are or what their intention. They might be human, they might be, for all we know, they might be supernatural. They are, they're a presence rather than a, a, a group of individual characters. And there is something innately terrifying about a force or an entity which has an objective and will not speak with you and will not rationalise with you and is just headed towards that at the exclusion of all else. Um, Very much in the way that the Terminator worked. Um, It can't be reasoned with, it can't be bargained with, it just will not, it absolutely will not stop until you are (laughs) dead. And that's what these, that that is the force that these gangs represent. And there is something absolutely terrifying about the silence with which they go about their business. Um, yeah, and silent the, purpose, yeah, absolutely. Just to have this thing in front of you, which you understand wants to kill you and will not respond to you, that will just stare you down and blankly continue to try to murder you, is infinitely more terrifying than someone who wants to explain to you an elaborate plot as to why they've tied you up in some sort of mechanism and whether or not you <laughs> want to play a game because of something terrible you once did. I think it is arguably Carpenter's purest. Mm. And in that respect, most cinematic work. And I would pick it as an example of... There, there would be a, a short list of five movies to explain to someone, here, here is what cinema is, here is the most distilled list of movies I can give you to explain what cinema is. I think this would be a pretty good pick for that list. Yes. I don't know if it would work for that for me, but it, it certainly I just enjoy it an awful lot. I think it's, like you say, it's one of these films I saw a good long while ago. I've not really returned mm. to this, I guess, as much as you have, but I've always enjoyed it when I have, and mm. certainly it was a, a pleasure to rewatch it again just this week. So, yes, I will never tire of it. Um, it is just very efficiently told. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think I've really got any faults I'd want to pick with it, um, so I, no. I shan't. No, I think... There's other things, actually, that I like about it on a technical aspect, too. There's some simple things, but for me, just... I don't know, make the film that bit better. Hmm. Uh, for instance, the gunshots. They're not huge squibs blowing holes out of walls. And there's not <laughs> and not big yeah. explosions. And you blow, it's like, they're using silenced weapons, which is actually a key plot point. Hmm. But also, there, there's something about the way the bullets land in the wall, and particularly the way the glass breaks, or rather mm-hmm. it doesn't, yeah. that makes me very much think... That was, and I haven't looked into the production of this, so I don't know, but it mm. makes me feel like it was done with actual real rounds rather than little explosive charges right. planted in walls like most films. There's one of that shots, that first volley where they all sort of hunker down and the first time that they just really lay into the station and they're opening salvo and there's a shot in there where there's a stack of papers just suddenly goes zip and like mm-hmm. beautifully they sort of just like fan out and sort of float down to the ground mm-hmm. um, if I remember correctly. I haven't rewatched it in preparation for this. The last time I watched it was some years ago but um, I, yeah that in particular I'm like that would be really hard to replicate by doing anything other than just shooting a bullet through a, through a, <laughs> ream, of, <laughs> through a ream of A4 paper. Yeah there, there's, there's a few bits like that and yes the way the the things end in the wall and I said the way the glass breaks like that feels to me like it's there's mm. some there they have people genuinely firing on their set. Um, yeah. and it I don't know, it just it makes it that bit more believable to me. Mm-hmm. That at least that it feels like that. It's not your typical movie thing of 
everything exploding outwards like it was hit more like by a howitzer shell than a simple bullet and <laughs> uh, with massive explosions and things and it's like uh, yeah the, the diminished sound from the silenced weapons and the zip of the bullets and then that impact like, yeah okay and now you, you feel more brought into the film and more in their position like oh yeah okay and you just kind of feel that's your, a really your good point soul, actually yeah head pulling down into your shoulders a wee bit that's a very good point i hadn't really considered that before so yeah there's there's a few things like, and it's just like i said again going back to efficient it's efficiently made and it's just a really taut and defective little thriller and it's, it's fantastic i think we're all in agreement with that then yes even if you guys wouldn't show it to <laughs> aliens i would uh i'm gonna go on to the fog then because we're doing this chronologically are we not talking about halloween on this list you already covered your 70s horror you two did you not uh, yes, that's a very good point. Okay, so the fog. Uh, as the sleepy coastal town of Antonio Bay prepares to celebrate its centennial, a ghostly fog rolls in from the sea, enveloping the town. Not really big news in itself, but within the fog there is a terror the unsuspecting residents are ill-equipped to face. A terror born of the actions of their descendants a hundred years ago to the day that has returned to <laughs> wreak its terrible vengeance. Goddamn Tories. <laughs> <laughs> just just Jacob Rees-Mogg standing with a cutlass Oh, f*** off, Mark <laughs> Don't make me shout at your kids again <laughs> A simple enough premise And in many ways the fog is one of Carpenter's least fussy Some would say uninspired efforts from the period in question Essentially a daft slasher movie with supernatural overtones The fog nonetheless succeeds to a fair degree in building fear and dread Predominantly through atmosphere And while it might not succeed to the same degree as The Thing Which we'll talk about in a bit It is interesting to see the mechanic being deployed here In what is firmly the most B-movie material It's a shame actually that the slasher element is present at all uh, As the occasional punctuation inserted by the overly theatrical Stabby knifey bits Serves as more of a full stop than a comma in proceedings And there's a good (laughs) argument to be made that the fog would be a more satisfyingly terrifying experience without them The cast are mostly serviceable Which seems a disappointing thing to say When you have the likes of Hal Holbrook and Janet Leigh In support of Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Atkins And the smoky late night radio presence of Adrian Barbeau Uh, They mostly go through the motions, though Curtis in particular having less to do than one might have expected from a reunion with their Halloween director. And while no one in particular disappoints, there is similarly no real standout performance here. And, as flat as this assessment sounds, there is a special place in my heart for the fog. For the things it does well, it does really well, and it does them often enough that they left an indelible impression on my far too young to have been witness to them mind. Uh, By the time the revelation (laughs) of the murderous figures within is upon us, it's largely redundant anyway. And you know what? There are times when I'm more interested in the journey than the destination. And I like the journey this movie takes me on very much. I know that People are generally quite critical of The Fog. Um, I have got a hugely soft spot for it, born largely of my first viewing experience with it, in which I was alone in a house on my own on an evening where my parents were away at a wedding, I think, and my sister might have been on a night out. And I sat up to watch it on TV, and I got about halfway through and had to had to tape the rest of it and watch it in the morning because I'm hugely susceptible, as rational as rational as I have been from a relatively young age. I'm still very easily freaked out by things <laughs> when I'm alone in a darkened house. But I wonder whether or not you gentlemen have any sort of 
have you got any sort of critical appreciation for the fog? Because I know a lot of people don't hold it in great stead. Well, let me say that I have only watched this film once in my life, mm-hmm. which was, what's the time? 20 past nine, mm-hmm. two hours ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and this film, meh? Not, not, not meh, more meh? You know, <laughs> shrug. Uh-huh. Uh, this is one of two films that uh, I've watched for this episode, which honestly, the most I can say about it is it is a film that I have seen. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so again, it's not badly made. The performances aren't bad. It just it kind of it happened and it had absolutely no impact on me whatsoever. It's not mm. even vaguely scary. I didn't find it atmospheric or tense or anything but I also didn't like find myself immediately hating it as I do so much of this genre so yeah I, this film left me completely flat and that is honestly all I have to say about <laughs> I, it I, I wouldn't wail on anyone for having that at all I, I totally acknowledge the shortcomings of it as a movie I still think there's a lot of stuff that works about it atmospherically in particular but I appreciate that at the same time this is a movie that landed on me uh, at a very specific time and place and a very formative period um, and had it had it been I who was watching it <laughs> at 7 o'clock tonight I might very well feel the same way that you do about it um, but what about yourself, Scott? Uh, much the same. I do now kind of remember watching it once a long, long time ago, um, and I don't think I thought all that much of it then. I, I probably found it a little bit more enjoyable on Rebox. There are things that I like on it. Um, I think it's, I think it's quite well shot for the most part. I, mm. I did like the way it looked, uh, probably more than anything else. And as you say that the bits when the fog's rolling in, and it's kind of when it's just the fog surrounding a building, um, yeah. then you can get that some sort of atmosphere building. Or when there. it's just the car alarms going off for no reason or the phones yeah. ringing, that's quite. That's quite unsettling in its own yeah. way. So, I mean, I'm on board with that, but the problem is basically it's as soon as the actual cutlass-wielding people yes. show up, it all gets a little bit uh, Garth Marenghi's dark place. It's lepers uh, who are dressed like pirates for some reason. Yes. Even though they were uh, described as being from a leper colony and not pirates. <laughs> pirates can, lepers can be pirates too, or pirates can be lepers too, one of the two. I know, sorry, I'm not being inclusive <laughs> enough. Don't be pirate normative. Um, <laughs> well, lepers are a big thing in 1880s California. <laughs> yes, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, there's parts of it that, that I could at least get behind, but overall, the film, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning more towards meth than anything else. That is it. I, I just... If you if you wrote out Jamie Lee Curtis, there would be really no need to change anything. Mm. She, she is simply there. And yeah, I'm not quite true. sure why. It's, it's very strange. Um, is that just so you can have trailers that say you know, Halloween director Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis back together again at last or something I'm not sure but it seems like she's been helicoptered in yeah off the financial success of um, Halloween I suspect mm. that was just a way to get this movie made where a studio was like yeah well of course we'll bankroll it but yeah get get Jamie get Jamie <laughs> back in the lead to, I, I desperately want this movie to be the way it is but I just want to take out all of the appearances of the figures in the fog. I want it to be about this fog that rolls in and then terrible things happen, but people just sort of discover it after the fact. I don't want... I, I, yeah. I, this would be the best horror movie ever if it was just that and we didn't have the silly, stabby stuff. Yeah. But I, yeah. Still, I still really, really like it. I'm still super fond of it. But it, I, get, I get quite frustrated when I think about how good this could have been if the obviously silly stuff had been taken out <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah for me again 
the pirates in the fog or whatever they are supposed to be um, is silly is a good word, but didn't elicit the typical derisive snort from you or anything. I was like, oh, that looks a bit crappy, but I didn't really care. Mm. Uh, Scott is absolutely right about Jamie Lee Curtis being in it. And I can wonder, is it, is it because she was in a film with her mother, which I don't think she did that many of, mm. even though they're, they're barely in it together at any point? Or is it just because, yes, she was in Halloween and is reunited with Carpenter there? Because you're right, Scott, her role has no purpose whatsoever. I suspect it's probably more a case of that and then she roped her mother in after the fact. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, for all that I'm fond of this, I've never actually read about any of the production history of it or anything, so I I couldn't speak to that. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, the only thing it's weird it's just it's an example of how little the film's atmosphere had an effect on me there's the scene where Adrian Barbeau is in the radio station and she has taken a bit of wood that her son finds mm-hmm. puts on top of a rack of tapes and then mm-hmm. you see the water starting to peer in it and like when she's listening to, when she's listening to the sort of um, uh, identity sort of candidates yeah yeah, and like so, it starts filling with water, and the seawater starts pouring down the tapes and stuff. And like, part of my brain is thinking, if I was invested in this film, I would be, you know, think thinking that's quite creepy. Yeah. But the rest of my brain is thinking, I wonder how they did that. Are the little pipes under hidden mm. pipes underneath the water? <laughs> like, that's that's, that's interesting because that's one of the standout scenes for me. That's one of the scenes that really freaked me out the first time round. More from an audio standpoint of the tapes beginning to warp and stuff as the uh-huh. uh, as the tapes playing back. But that is definitely one of the scenes that freaked me out the most. And then when this when the sort of water clears away and it reveals the message on the wood, that really creeped me out. Yeah, that really creeped me out, the message about six must die. <laughs> I keep in mind that was, I think, about 12 or something. That then, makes a big difference, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, now I probably wouldn't be so freaked out, but there was something, there, there's something very unsettling about that scene. But yeah, you're right, watching it now, it's like, hmm, interesting practical effect. It's got to be yeah, a really simple way to achieve that. There was absolutely no emotional effect to me at all, mm. beyond curiosity as to how did they do that? <laughs> mm. Um but uh, just you mentioned being 12 too, and it's something I've been thinking about a few times recently, just in terms of horror in general. I'm thinking, you know what, I really think, certainly for me, horror is a teenager's thing, because as an adult, I just don't remember being scared pretty much ever, um, <laughs> you know, beyond the occasion, uh, by film anyway, um, beyond the very occasional and rare instances, so I don't know. Maybe 12 year olds old is the best time to watch this. Yeah, and I find, I don't even know so much about an age thing, but I think, it, and I find now, I will only really be unsettled by anything if I'm on my own. It has to be a solitary thing. I don't understand people who claim to be disturbed and upset by movies in a theatre setting when you're surrounded <laughs> by other people. Yeah. I have to be alone with my thoughts and as, as, as much of a sceptic and a rationalist as I am about things. And as much as I understand there is no such thing as a ghost, I'm still, I kind of, I am still intrigued by that stuff. And I would love to live in a world where it's real. <laughs> and, I, mm-hmm. and I am quite happy to be taken on that journey. I still love a good story. And I am really susceptible to being freaked out by something on the proviso that I'm on my own. In an empty house, and it's <laughs> and it's late at night, and that's just not a situation I ever find myself in anymore. <laughs> I don't think it would have saved Hereditary, but um, I did. I did listen to that feedback from you guys on the previous episode, and uh, yes, I think we were all broadly in agreement on that one. <laughs> okay, um, 
I think we're done with the fog then, it would seem. We are. Yes. The, fog has, the fog has rolled back out to sea. Um, cool. Drew, you were leading into... Escape from New York. Yeah, take it away. So, in the grim and unimaginably distant future of 1997, <laughs> <laughs> crime in the United States has reached epidemic proportions, with harsh sentences being imposed on those found guilty of even relatively lesser crimes, and the whole of Manhattan having been turned into a prison, with little power or food, but apparently plenty of scope for making steam-powered cars. But I digress. As Kurt Russell's Clint Eastwood... Sorry, sorry, sorry. As Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken is being prepared for his placement in a Manhattan prison, a life sentence for robbery, which seems a tad harsh, a plane flying over the island is in distress. This plane just happens to be Air Force One, and it has been hijacked by terrorists. Donald Pleasancy's entirely convincingly American president escapes. <laughs> along with a C-60 cassette tape that's of crucial world importance, and he lands somewhere in the metropolis. <laughs> a C-60 cassette. <laughs> what could be on it that's of that, possibly of the, that much importance? <laughs> it's the new 12-inch from the pet shop, boys, damn it. It's a compilation of pirated Spectrum games. <laughs> <laughs> The prison's warden, Bob Houck, Lee Van Cleef, offers Pliskin, seemingly the most famous soldier in the world or something, given that everyone seems to know him, a deal. <laughs> Rescue the president and his <laughs> tape. You know how soldiers get famous and become household names, eh? Yeah. That was all the time. Rescue the president and his tape and get a full pardon. Pliskin accepts the deal, but is less than pleased when Houck imposes a 22-hour time limit because apparently the president is useless in less than a day. So I'm already picking holes in this film, and a film I actually reasonably enjoy, but I'll, I'll carry on. And just to give him that extra impetus to succeed, has him implanted with micro-explosives that will rupture his carotid arteries if he fails in his mission. Pliskin pilots a glider to the top of one of the World Trade Center towers, and then must locate the president in the urban war zone that Manhattan has become, avoiding the various street gangs that roam the city, and extricate him. Along the way, he'll meet Isaac Hayes, Duke of New York, Harry Dean Stanton's brain, and Ernest Borgnine's psychic cabbie, who's always where you need them to be when you need a cab, um, all of whom will in some way help or hinder his progress. To be honest, I don't have an awful lot to say about Escape from New York. It's a action film, and Kurt Russell shoots some folk. Um, it's Escape from New York is set in the same sort of grotty, bleak, dystopian near future as films like Robocop though it's got far less of a social narrative and really is more of a straight up action film and in that regard it's entirely watchable and competent but resolutely nothing special but at least it's not Escape from LA <laughs> at no point in this film does Snake Plissken go surfing down a street <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen Escape from New York in years and years and years. And my interest in general in this sort of action film is not what it was when, for instance, I was a wee boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, 12-year-old me loved this film. 232-year-old me or whatever the hell I am now. (laughs) um, It's like, yeah, it's okay, but nothing much happens. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I honestly don't have much more to say than that. 
other than I never realised in the past quite how much of a Clint Eastwood impression Kurt Russell is doing throughout this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm probably in a similar place. I, I don't think I'd seen this in the intervening time since I saw it at some point, I don't know, <laughs> probably nearly 20 years ago now. Um, but it's still sort of fun in a really stupid way. Uh, <laughs> it, it's nice to see Kurt Russell just uh, hamming it up um, as, as a lead role, but yes, everything else in it is pretty silly. Uh, but it's silly enough to kind of still have some amount of charm. I, uh, I didn't mind yeah. watching it. Uh, I, 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 so I don't want to think I, I didn't like it. It's just that there's nothing nothing particularly massively praiseworthy about it, so I don't have much to say. <laughs> this is one of those films that I'm pretty sure I have seen in its entirety, however, sort of piecemeal. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I have sat down with the purpose of, or with the intent of watching it from start to finish on more than one occasion, and really never made it more than about 20, 25 minutes in. It's just never struck a chord with me in the same way that a film we will talk about in a couple of movies' time seems to be immensely popular with a certain group of people and I have just never appreciated what it is, despite the fact I feel like I should very much be predisposed to liking it. I can't really comment too much on Escape from New York. I just, uh, From what I've seen of it, it's very, very silly and it's very much of its time and place. And um, part of that trend of movies from the latter half of the last century where... America goes out of its way to paint the most dystopian possible future that you'd want to avoid, and which the first part of this century has taught us they will do anything possible to achieve. <laughs> Scathing social commentary from Craig there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the only other thing I found remarkable at this film is that, um, as I mentioned, you know, the f- there doesn't seem to be food or power provided to these prisoners in Manhattan, although they can make steam-powered cars somehow. And also there's, there's plenty of hairspray, at least for one yeah. man. <laughs> they've, still, yeah, uh, they've still got styling products in abundance. <laughs> that, um, it's, yeah, that cart is the guy that gets killed in Assault on Precinct 13 by the father of the wee girl. It's the same actor. And he just appears... Kind of with the, it's a ridiculous character and it just, it's almost laughably bad um, <laughs> it's the one thing that almost took me out of that film just kind of hissing and just ridiculous and it basically looks like a human troll doll hmm. and as soon as he appeared I'm thinking that, that's like four cans of hairspray on one head why is there so much hairspray in this <laughs> person? I have no idea where our next meal is coming from but we do have a we do have a thriving black market for hairspray and why, when deciding your place for this prison, Connolly, do you make it the most expensive bit of real estate in the country? Oh, yeah. We'll just use that. That seems legit. Yes. <laughs> so. I, I've never quite understood that either because I mean, in Los Angeles, it's kind of post-apocalyptic in terms of like an earthquake or something that's happened in Escape from LA. Um, and in Robocop, mm. Detroit, at the time, was a rundown city. Still is a rundown city. It's now a lot of poverty, a lot of closed mm. industry and stuff. So it made sense to set that in Detroit. But making Manhattan the financial <laughs> centre of your country, and yes, Scott says the most expensive real estate, a prison. It's like, yeah, it's a nice idea. Just don't think too hard mm. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a very good reason for it. And if, yes. <laughs> in the future of 1997. Uh, fair enough. Anything more to say about that then? I think not. I think we should just crash onwards to the thing. Crash, I shall. 
There's a select club of movies which were not huge commercial successes upon release, but which have, over time, and through proliferation of home formats, achieved a touchstone cultural status where everyone in the observable universe has ended up seeing them one way or another, and which have very few dissenting voices contra to popular opinion. The Raquel Welsh poster child of this club is probably the Shawshank Redemption, but it has an older, altogether more icky founding member in the shifting shape of John Carpenter's The Thing. Adapted from John W. Campbell's short story Who Goes There, itself previously adapted for the big screen in 1951 as Howard Hawke's excellent The Thing from Another World, Carpenter's take will likely be so familiar to you already as to make anything I've already written down, or I'm about to say, totally redundant. You already know that the film's pervasive sense of dread, unease and paranoia, unassumingly fuel-injected by Carpenter's customary downbeat homebrew synth score, speaks more in service of horror than pretty much anything released since. You already know that Rob Bottin's groundbreaking practical creature effects work is infinitely more disturbing than anything that's ever been rendered in CG. You already know the debate that has followed in the wake of its wonderfully ambiguous ending. And you already know that Donald Moffat would rather not spend the rest of the winter tied to this f***ing couch. For what it's worth, the thing holds up unspeakably... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll be honest, I was expecting a bigger laugh. For what it's worth, the thing holds up unspeakably well even today, unless you're my wife, in which case you're frequently wrong about popular entertainment anyway, and can only count on my continued presence in this house because you accepted Blade Runner 2049 into your heart and tolerate me openly discussing my plan to start a new life with Ryan Gosling with our listeners and my colleagues and Ryan's voicemail and the judge. (laughs) <laughs> I think 20 years from now, when people gaze retrospectively on Carpenter's career, they will look to Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween and The Thing as benchmarks, but I'd be very surprised if the majority don't cite the latter as their favourite, irrespective of whether it's technically his best. Discuss. Yes. Best mm-hmm. is a tricky word. Absolutely my favourite, mm-hmm. though. It's, again, it's doesn't what you exactly mean by best, but I think in many ways it is his best film. It has a lot of the efficiency that is in efficiency of character that's in a sort of piece of thirteen with a wee bit of fleshing out, and all that sort of thing works so well too because the characters don't speak much to each other to give any character motivation, a mm. character backstory, because a mm-hmm. it's not important, b there's no particular reason to care, and c actually given they've been together in the Antarctic for six months, they have said everything they could yes. possibly say to each other. There was no, there wouldn't make any sense for them yes. to speak, to talk about their family back home or their past or whatever. They already mm-hmm. all know it. Um, so actually that was really true to the setting of the characters. I also think the the less understanding we have of particular character traits, the more effective it becomes to try and understand who or what might be the thing at any one given point. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, the, the creature work is superb. There's Bottin and also there is puppetry work from one Mr. Mm-hmm. Stan Winston, which just, you know, as if the, the film's effects work couldn't get any better you add Stan Winston as well mm-hmm. making the dog puppet in an incredibly short amount of time as well yeah I just love this film it's, I saw this very young I think it might have been on Channel 4 at some point and it would have been in the 1980s and I was probably too young to be watching it but I remember so clearly the head spreading legs and the doctor's arms being chopped off by the mm. rib cage of the body um, mm. And I saw both of those things at far too young an age, and I've never, ever <laughs> forgotten them. And from the beginning, this <laughs> film had a huge effect on me. 
Nowadays, certainly it doesn't scare me, but it does creep me out. And again, some of the, the creature effects are super, super creepy and kind of disturbing looking. So it does achieve that in a way that so few other films have for me. I think one of the reasons they've weathered so well, as well as that I think the nature of the, um, quite literally the nature of the beast, it's an extraterrestrial presence, so it's not, you know, nobody's, we're not we're not looking at those practical effects now and being fooled into thinking that's actually somebody's head peeling away from the rest of their body, but it is kind of, there's a, there's a huge latitude of tolerance there when you take into account that it's it's an alien presence and how how would how would that look how would that behave um <laughs> it's so fantastical yeah. that um I, it kind of gets away with it even now yeah it's also the very unsettling effect of corrupted humanity mm. um i mean humanity has in flesh rather than the the species and all the the philosophy sort of, but uh corrupted human bodies and it's like you just human but wrong and it's, it's decidedly creepy mm. and uh, yeah beautifully shot uh, the recent restoration of it is looks even better than it's ever done before um, it looks fantastic properly colour graded and everything and it's really really good looking film and then there are lots of subtle things that you probably aren't going to pick up on your first watch maybe not even your second or third unless you know to look for them and maybe once you've seen it three times or something you start to pick up too but really subtle things like there's a key light in all of the actor's eyes apart from the one who is the thing at that point mm-hmm. and it's so subtle but it's so clever and so well done and maybe you pick up on it subconsciously but little things like that like not having reflection in the eyeballs of the one person who in any given scene is the thing and you start seeing that sort of craft throughout the whole film it's fantastic really really tense uh, Kurt Russell's yeah, it's not the best actor, but he does a pretty solid job in the leading role here. And Keith David is fantastic. No wonder <laughs> Carpenter came back to put him and write a role specifically for him for They Live. And I don't know, I just love this one. I think it is hugely entertaining, inventive, creative, and possibly, because I don't like them at all in general, possibly the best remake that I've ever seen. Hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fly in the face of any of that. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. I agree completely. It is fantastic. Um, but yeah, I always forget just how gross the, the kind of body horror elements of it are. And it mm-hmm. always does take me aback every now and again. It's just it's just icky on a very <laughs> visceral level. And um, yeah. yeah, that's part of what makes it so makes it so affecting to this day. I still think it really works. And uh, let's say, even if you're not scared by it after the first couple of times you see it, it's still just really entertaining. Um, yeah. And it's, God, it's Certainly one of Kurt Russell's best performances, I think, um, or at least his best roles, if perhaps not performance. But yeah, it is. It just all hangs together really well. It's just expertly crafted. Um, again, very efficient. Um, something I appreciate with all of Carton's work, he he does not hang around for padding things out to two hours like so many films these days feel they need to. Um, mm. Pretty much everything's done in less than ninety minutes and is generally better for it. Um, um, yeah, the thing is really great and it deserves for. Every to go and watch it immediately. Um, the thing's actually pushing two hours, so it's the probably the one Carpenter film that really yeah. um, avoids that in general, but I, I noticed that too, Scott. But it certainly watching. doesn't feel like it. No, um, but yeah, most of these films, 90, maybe 100 minutes, just because they're so efficient. And they don't need to do more. They do everything they need to do within their time frame, really. So. I think I think as well, he's, as a director, it's, uh, well, I don't want to attribute 
a train of thought to him that I, I, I'm not certain about. But I, I think there's, there are certain genres and certain materials that when you're dealing with it, it doesn't it doesn't serve to give the audience too much time to think about it because the the minute the minute you have dead air in a film or something about this with a shape-changing alien which has been buried under the ice for several hundred years or whatever um comes back and starts assuming uh, the form of people in an Ar- you know antarctic ice station and uh, murdering people and metamorphosing and being very gruesome the the minute you give any amount of dead air there for people to stop and think about it. The suspension of disbelief is going to is going to diminish um, pretty pretty rapidly. Um, and I've always, if nothing else, even the films of carpenters that don't work properly, I've always appreciated them sort of going along at that fair old lick just mm-hmm. because they don't give you time to stop and think about it too much. Here's the story. Here's what it is. Take it or leave it. Did you like that? No. Right. Okay. Here comes something <laughs> yes. else. There's certainly something to that. Yeah. So just I wanted to. Just- mentioned something in relation to what you mentioned earlier to Craig, the music what I have noticed actually watching so many John Carpenter films in a really really tightly crammed space of time mm-hmm. I hate John Carpenter's music so much oh you're kidding me no I've come I've come to really really detest that really heavy synthetic bass line it was driving me crazy but, no that's one of the things I like the most but yeah. what I have noticed is that in the films that I like more mm-hmm. I either like the music more or mm-hmm. I'm less aware of it so I don't know if that's cause or effect or the better films have better music anyway see this period of film where especially the thing and a film we'll, again that we'll talk about in a couple of films time in particular which I just have this. <laughs> we are going to disagree heavily on the music in that film I think but yeah. <laughs> the, yeah no the the, the, um, the it's usually that initial it's usually the opening score that I appreciate the most it's usually the most minimal I, I was thinking about this earlier. The, his films usually open with very sort of simple credits, usually cutting back and forward between sort of, you know, some sort of exposition or something, and then it'll be black title card, but just mm, yeah, but like, almost, back and forward. Almost full credits at the start of the film too. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll get... I, I've just always found that his, his scoring of that stuff, it's usually very slow, very minimalist, very bass and a little bit of higher pitch synth creeping in here and there that will hint at sort of like a theme later in the movie. And I've always I've always found that incredibly ominous in tone. And I have always found that that gives any one of those movies where he deploys that a real sort of leg up from the very off. I think it sets I think it sets a really particular tone very early on or something like Prince of Darkness that we're going to talk about in a bit. There's, I think it serves it particularly well in the opening because it, I feel like it lends this real sort of Lovecraftian sense of this horror sort of awakening. Mm. It's almost like this heartbeat of something that's come out of hibernation and it's waking up now and it's coming, it's coming to ruin your day, whether you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, I've always really appreciated that. So I'm interested, and I know lots of people appreciate Carpenter scores and, and sort of, you know, collect them on various formats. I wouldn't go that far, but I'm interested to hear someone who feels the, the contrary. I hadn't particularly thought about it until you said it right now, but I actually think you're right about the introduction. Mm. Because I think, in general, I, I can just like close my eyes and imagine the introductions of all of these films dun, dun. with that music and yeah, the fade to black title screen, dun, bit dun. of exposition, exactly as you say, Craig. And actually, it's really, really successful. Mm. 
but just in so many of these films outside of it, the, the scores were doing my head in by the end, quite frankly. Um, again, yeah. see if I hadn't watched so many so similar sounding films in such a short space of time, maybe mm. it would have been a problem. Mm. Where, but one that I do and always have particularly liked, though, that is an exception really here for me. I mean, they live, um, so I quite like the score, but I don't not have a hugely strong feeling about it necessarily. But I've always liked the Thing score. And that's maybe because it's sort of, yet not quite, a collaboration with Ennio Morricone. Mm-hmm. There's some of Ennio Morricone's music in there, but some of it that Carpenter replaced, but also some of Morricone's music was actually based on Carpenter's mm-hmm. own ideas, like the stuff for, like the theme from Escape from New York was used mm-hmm. as a, sort of a starting ground for one of Morricone's pieces, that sort of thing. So whether maybe the Morricone influence, whose music I've always particularly enjoyed, is part of it, but the things music is another thing that has just it has going for it. It's just such a great film in every respect. You've just given me an idea as well. We should really do an episode where we each talk about a favourite film score. That might work. Could be interesting. And we can we can we uh, splice in clips of the. Yeah, do we have to fight each other for Lawrence of Arabia though? No, because I'd be going for Blade Runner, which is. Okay, because I really hate Vangelis, so there we can both have. I absolutely loathe loathe Vangelis, apart from the Blade Runner soundtrack, and in particular Blade Runner Blues, which is just. (laughs) Oh dear. Um, Please burn all 1980s saxophone music. Oh, true. Uh, Right, where did we get to? Big trouble in little China. Um, let's then chat about a film that I've never quite gotten a handle on the way other people seem to. Big trouble in little China. Scott, what is that about? Yes, uh, another entry in the hallowed pantheon of films I'd swear blind had seen, but on watching it, apparently hadn't. Or if I have, I've so forgotten it so entirely that I might as well not have seen it. This 1986 joint sees Carpenter fulfil an ambition to direct a martial arts film. <laughs> Bully for him. If not, perhaps, for any audiences watching it. Kurt Russell's unjustly self-assured trucker, Jack Burton, blunders his way into the middle of a wushu plot, trying to help his friend, Dennis Dunn's Wang Chi, rescue his freshly emigrated green-eyed fiancée, Susie Pai's Mao Yin, from her immediate kidnapping on her <laughs> arrival to the country. Uh, what seems at first to be some common garden gang warfare and sex slavery takes a turn for the supernatural when James Hong's <laughs> sorcerer, David Lopan, and his three mystical warrior goons show up in the middle to take you in for their own. So... <laughs> Yes, it's a lot like Assault in Precinct 13 in terms of economy of plot. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that David, surely the most stereotypical name for an ancient Chinese sorcerer, is under some sort of curse and must marry a green-eyed girl to break it and take over the world. Boo. Hiss. And so it's up to Jack and his allies to stop him, including the magician-slash-tourbus driver Egg Shen, played by Victor Wong, lawyer-slash-love interest Gracie Law, played by Kim Cattrall, and what's the opposite of intrepid? Trepid. That'll do. Trepid journalist Margot, played by Kate Burton. Cue a bunch of bluffing, chasing, pratfalling, capturing and escaping with the odd fight scene thrown in to make sure you're paying attention, which, to be honest, you shouldn't. Uh, (laughs) Most of James Liu's fight choreography is perhaps the most successful element here, with Carpenter deserving some credit for capturing it competently for a first-timer. However, most Wushu films tend not to feature automatic weaponry, for much the reason on display here it clashes really badly with the fantasy kung fu and leaves the whole film looking silly. Now, I suppose silly is very 
very much what Big Trouble is going for, but in my opinion, it's not quite the right kind of silly. Uh, I'm not sure I can get my head around a script that's clearly a kid's action adventure, but sets part of it in a brothel. This... (laughs) (laughs) Now, this was surprisingly well-received critically on release before bombing at the box office and then slowly becoming a cult classic. It would seem that most of the reasons it is now liked are much the same reasons I really don't like it, so take the rest of this for what you will. Um, Kurt Russell's just unlikable. I know what they're going for. I mean, Jack thinks he's the hero, but he's actually the comic sidekick. But I'm not sure either the script or Russell was let in on the plan. But the quick-fire dialogue between him and, well, everyone, but Kim Cattrall in particular, aims for some sort of 30s-era charm like a William Powell and Myrna Loy revival, but instead evokes a plank of wood and a less charismatic plank of wood. The, the jokes That's fall not f- just me. <laughs> <laughs> the jokes fall flat more often than not, and the hybrid Indiana Jones slash Homer Simpson character they've made is just annoying. I'd, I'd be much happier if he was just gone from the thing entirely and Dennis Dunn could handle things sans guns, but, well, by that point, you might as well go and watch a Chinese ghost story. Um, mm-hmm. James Hong's dependable enough as the bad guy, but his aura is rather hobbled by others telling us what his deal is through obnoxiously clunky dialogue rather than, you know, have him do much of anything. Um, so perhaps I'm expecting too much from a throwaway 80s action outing, but then all I was expecting was something vaguely enjoyable, so more fool me, I suppose. Um, perhaps an element of nostalgia helps this the way I'll admit that certain other Carpenter works through for me, and we'll get onto the live in a minute. Uh, but sadly, I got very little from this. Oh, and if this were a modern film, I'd accuse it of cultural appropriation. But then, seeing as it does appear to get its understanding of Chinese culture from a fortune cookie, perhaps that's not going to hold a lot of water. Um, I read, bafflingly, that Carpenter did remove certain aspects of the script before shooting it in case it offended Chinese Americans. And if that's the case, I dread to think what that was, given what's been left in here. I mean, did it have Mickey Rooney in yellow face again? I mean, really, the best course of editing what's left would be Control-A, Delete. <laughs> yeah, this, oh, this film. Um, I, <laughs> you can say what you want about the film, but listen, I can assure you, it's not offensive towards Chinese people. Um, <laughs> I yeah. took those bits out. Are you all right, John? <laughs> I left in all the, your mess. Left in the bits where um, there's lots of Japanese actors in there too, right? Because all Asians are the same, no? <laughs> what um, was the bit he cut out? <laughs> <laughs> Did Jack Burton just piss on a giant map of China or something? <laughs> There'll be the, that scene where Kurt Russell um, was blending in in the brothel by putting his fingers in the side of his eyes and pulling his eyelids shut. <laughs> That's about the only thing the film didn't have. <laughs> Sorry, man. Oh, my God. Oh. How times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Course, yeah. Uh, this is the the second of the films that we watched for this podcast, but I actually, I couldn't bring myself to hate it. It was more just, uh, okay, I, I, I suppose that I have seen that now. Um, but yes, it's, um, so I, mean, I wasn't absolutely bored by it. But yeah, this is a film that I had never seen until last week. It's a film that... Oh, wow. Um, I pretty much had known the name of at some point and that was it. I, I basically mm. found out, I really came to the realisation it was a John Carpenter film mm. last week also when we were discussing <laughs> what to cover for this. And and yeah, then, but think about it, it, I'm aware now that it does have like something of a cult 
appreciation. And again, like, so mm. I'm left wondering why. So there's that website, Last Exit to Nowhere, who's done a lot, some other um, John Carpenter stuff. I've got one of their um, Cable 54 They Live t-shirts, in fact. And I know that they were selling Pork Chop Express t-shirts and only in the last week have I found out what that was a reference to. So mm-hmm. oblivious was I to this film. Uh, I kind of wish that was still the same. <laughs> but again, I don't hate it. It's more just, it's not really interesting. It's it's a series of flashing images on a screen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I last saw this, like, very random images. Uh, it's like, oh, look, a man's face expanding to the size of a hot air balloon. Um, <laughs> I watched this, firmly sat down with the intention of giving this a fair hearing about three years ago now. And I think it was around about the time Special Edition came out on, it finally got a sort of a Blu-ray release or whatever. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was a remaster or not. It's largely irrelevant, as as is the film. And I think I had sat down at various points when I was a bit younger and watched this. There was a period where it seemed to be shown on ITV uh, on television over here, like every third week or something. And I remember a couple of times trying and never quite actually having the opportunity to watch all of it and having been mildly baffled by it then. But then I think when I first moved down... When I first moved away from home back in 2004, I came down and the group of friends that I made down here were all very much united by Big Trouble in Little China. And at some point a few years ago, I made the decision to actually, I need to get on board with this and actually now appreciate what is what is clearly there to be appreciated and which I just have not picked up on. And I was doing a big pile of ironing and... Man, I made a really good job of that big pile of ironing because it was impossible to take any kind of interest in the film on the television in front of me while I was doing the ironing. Uh, I was, I am baffled. I was baffled. I remain baffled to this day by the esteem with or the regard with which so many people seem to hold this film. I f- don't find any of the bits they find funny funny. I don't find any of the dialogue particularly quotable in the way that so many people seem to find it. It's all in the reflexes. I can't remember a single bit of dialogue. I, honest to God, Not I one don't. Line. I just don't get it. It's one of those films that makes me stop and think, am I that far out of sync with popular opinion on media in general? I don't think I am, but I don't know. I've just never understood the appeal of this. I think even at a very early age, I was aware of how like terminally racist <laughs> so much of this film actually is. And it certainly doesn't play very well now in more enlightened <laughs> times 30 years down the line. What I will say for it is this, I think it's one of Drew Struzan's nicest pieces of cover artwork. <laughs> and that's that. Yeah, so watching this, I didn't, going into it, I didn't have any good grasp on what sort of film it was meant to be. I mean, really, my my knowledge of this was almost impressively minimal. Yeah, and can that, you tell us now what type of film it's supposed to be, Drew? I'll get back to you. <laughs> because that's, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, is this a parody? Or is it just bad? <laughs> well, it could have been a bad parody, which is what I think it was. But um, I'm watching I'm like, there's these horribly, I mean, truly awful, it's the one bit of the film that I could generally, most of it, I just like, eh, okay, it's there. But um, the bits of the film that I really, really disliked were the, really, really, almost impossibly, inconceivably bad exposition scenes, where there's a whole scenes of people talking to each other in exposition. And I'm like, is is this deliberate? 
is this a parody or is it just deliberately this bad? <laughs> and because um, there's a scene, it's Kim Cattrall's character comes into the restaurant and they're talking about what they're going to do and then they're saying, it falls a little after it too, ah, I am this person. No, oh, and I am this person. We're going to do to this thing. But you can't do that thing. You must do this thing to do that thing. And it's the most terribly written scene I've possibly mm. ever seen. And There's just so much going on. Yeah, but also, is this bad? Is that a parody of this kind of expositionary dialogue or not? And then it's not aided by the fact that Kim Cattrall is particularly appalling in this film. Her acting is so awful. And I'm then again thinking, is this a parody? Mm. And then if it is... Is her acting deliberately bad? And then part of me's thinking, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. Even if it's deliberately bad acting, it's still bad acting. It's not any fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the whole film is just is a mess. And I, I, I'm struggling to find any reason why people would really grab onto this. There's, there is just an overwhelming amount of stuff going on. It's, it's one of those films where they have literally thrown everything at the wall to see what sticks, but they didn't actually start a camera up until everything <laughs> fell off the wall and landed on the floor. <laughs> because nothing sticks. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get it at all. It seems to be informed by that sort of Sunday matinee movie thing that inspired... Um, Spielberg to uh, Indiana Jones but uh, it feels like it's going for that sort of vibe but in a more fantastical setting. It doesn't yeah. work. No. Um, I mean there, there are almost bits too that almost worked for me and I thought like, there's a, I thought it was going to be a really good running gag through the film. It was with the names of all the Chinese hells mm-hmm. and they start off with that because there's the there's the, um, the hell of the oily dragon and the hell where they put burning oil on you, and then the hell of the upside-down fisherman, um, or whatever it was. And I, that, for some, that really tickled me, and I thought, oh, it's just going to, they're going to carry on like, getting more ridiculous names, and I, I'd have been on board with that. I'd have found that genuinely funny. And then it's like, ah, oh, no, they only do it another couple of times, and it's really mundane. Oh, okay, so they can even follow that through. Yeah, there's, there's, there's one more thing that could have been stripped out of this to make it slightly more coherent. Yeah. <laughs> Um, also, yeah, Scott's right, but the complete mishmash of gunplay and um, worship doesn't work. No. Not at all. No, never never the twain uh, shall meet. But look how much we've ended up talking about it. Uh, <laughs> let, us, let us crack on to Prince of Darkness, Drew. Yes, uh, so beneath an abandoned early 20th century Los Angeles church lies something much, much older. Not just the 16th century catacombs constructed by the Spanish, nor the glass jar that was originally buried in the Middle East around the time of Jesus Christ, but the jar's contents, a swirling green liquid millions of years old, powerful, malevolent, alive. The jar's existence was known only to a secret sect of Catholic priests, known as the Brotherhood of Sleep, until the last of their number dies and Donald Pleasancy's priest discovers it. He quickly determines its nature as a thing of evil and enlists the help of Victor Wong's Professor Birak and his group of 30 to 40 year old students to scientifically prove its potency <laughs> and inform the world of the true nature of evil. So, yeah, I know students can be any age, but these people are, and I checked on IMDb too, nearly all in their 30s to 40s. It kind of mm-hmm. takes you out of that a bit as a group of research students, but <laughs> a minor issue. Spending the weekend in the church, the research group begin investigating the jar and its contents, while the jar's contents begin investigating and then controlling them. Other mysterious phenomena occur, and the church is surrounded by a group of malevolent street people determined to keep them from escaping. 
after The Thing and maybe Starman, actually. This is probably the first John Carpenter film I saw in its entirety. Thanks, in fact, to Craig, who introduced it <laughs> to me um, when I were a lad. I, I was going to say, I wondered, I couldn't remember whether this was something you'd recall or not, but I, re- I remember lobbying pretty hard for you to watch this. Yes, I must have, must have talked about it at high school at some point after mm-hmm. we said because I remember talking about the the dream sequences the dream, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember finding it creepy and unsettling in a way few films have ever made me feel. And I had some very strong memories, notably the hand reaching through the mirror and especially the thing I've just referenced, the dream broadcasts. It had been probably 20 years since I last saw it though, so I was pretty eager to revisit it. Having now done so, I can say that it is... All right. (laughs) It's fine. Uh, It held my interest, so that puts it well above most other films in the genre immediately. I I really like the idea of Jesus the alien and evil as an elder god and a true tangible force rather than a spiritual concept. Though for all that Prince of Darkness shows scientific research into the phenomenon, it doesn't really commit itself fully enough to the concept... And, you know, it could have really done with some other method of transmission of infection of evil in addition to squish of liquid. (laughs) There are some atmospheric sequences, certainly, but so many of them are massively undermined by the terrible, overbearing and massively too loud music. (laughs) The surges of which may as well be orchestral stabs, as well as the presence of Dennis Dunn, an unwelcome return from Big Trouble in Little China. So, interesting ideas, certainly some moments of tension and reasonable atmosphere and Vincent Fernier, better known as Alice Cooper who's you know just generally creepy looking bloke anyway, uh, although it does take care of a bit because here's this guy who's quite clearly Alice Cooper look at him, he's Alice Cooper, look there's Alice Cooper, you know the one that looks like Alice Cooper, it's Alice Cooper which takes you out of the film somewhat Alice Cooper's in this movie somewhere yeah, um, uh, but yeah <laughs> so tension and reasonable atmosphere despite the soundtrack and I still enjoyed it is it scary though Sorry, or in um, slightly plighter words, it is most certainly not a frightening film, at least for me, not anymore. Pity that, because I, I did find it decidedly creepy in the past. Yes, um, Craig, I'm sorry to have disappointed you that I no longer like it as much as not I did. Not at all, I, I get it, absolutely. I remain incredibly fond of this, and again, like The Fog, it is a film that came along at a massively uh, formative period, and like you, I still find an awful lot about it that does work and is unsettling. The effects work and, you know, all of the practical stuff has not held together as well as something like The Thing. But I think conceptually, I still find this such an interesting film. And again, very much like The Fog, there's an element to this of... It's almost like... It's almost like two films spliced together. Again, it's a film that's attempting to address something much much deeper but it's dressing it up in very silly clothes <laughs> i think it's i think it's incredibly i think it's incredibly noteworthy that this is a film which 30 years ago was trying to marry quantum physics to horror which is something that we might only reasonably expect to find now now that quantum physics is very much a popular buzz topic and seems to be a great excuse for any number of plot contrivances in any number of movies um are you thinking of the cloverfield effect <laughs> I'm thinking of any number of things, but that would certainly be the most recent um, abhorrent um, (laughs) blip on our cinematic radar. Uh, While nobody's arm is taking on a life of its own here and uh, people being fused within walls, um, I think it's... it's 
I think it's. <laughs> Sorry for going that. <laughs> I know, but it's okay. They're all right now. Um, <laughs> I think it's really notable that this is a film that was about twenty to thirty years ahead of its time, topically. Um, and I just wish it had stuck with that and removed some of the silly, again, sort of over the top. Um, just slasher movie elements which sort of creep in around yes, around the edges like I don't need to see someone being impaled on a bike that's, that's the one that's the first death I think and yeah the, when Alice Cooper stabs that guy with um, the, with a push the, bike the bike to like yeah, this, I had to kind of forgot that that element was even in this film because it's not memorable. And it's all, no. all the other stuff, it's like it's, so few films had that sort of thing. Every film has people being stabbed, it's boring. Yeah, and it's, all it does is detract from what is actually a sort of a very fundamentally creepy sort of suggestion or, or topic that the film otherwise wants to explore. And yeah, I don't, I, I mean, when I watch this now, it's one of two horror films that I own on Blu-ray, <laughs> the other one being The Fog. And I remain incredibly fond of Prince of Darkness, again, more so because of the sort of half-realised potential of it and the better version of this film that exists in my head. Hmm. But there is a lot that works about it and there are still images there that uh, that that um, do sort of stay with me even to today. So the the dream sequence, which after I, after I saw this movie, the, the dream messages that were being transmitted um, is something that after the first time I saw this movie for a period of about three to four years afterwards, I would intermittently have that dream. That's how that's how sort of unsettling I found that um, that imagery. I'm pretty certain I've had that dream too, actually. Yeah. Um, a yeah. long, long time ago, of course. I'm oh, pretty sure I did. Drew, it's, I it's so effective. Wait a minute. It is, is <laughs> amazingly simple, but also incredibly effective. Uh, and again, the thing with the, the mirror at the end, there is that whole thing of there being a suggestion of horror and sort of pulling back right at the moment before the reveal, so that at least something is left to your imagination. And sort of the act of sacrifice at the end. Again, it's not a, it's, it's a horror movie that ends on uh, very much a downer, actually. Um, in a lot of respects, uh, given the way that that climax pans out, uh, the the evil is dealt with, but at, not at no cost. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's still an awful lot about this that works, and then there's an awful lot about it that I'm, I, I, you know, I'm realistic about it. I wouldn't expect someone to watch this now and think it's the greatest horror film ever. I'm glad I first saw it when I did, because again, if I were approaching this for the first time now, um, I would undoubtedly not feel the same way about it. But I admire what this film sets out to achieve and what it 70% does achieve. Uh, but I, I don't know. Scott, what do you make? Watched this for the first time yesterday with my wife. And um, thought it was total pish. She found it entirely laughable and I found it mostly laughable. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, not really on board with this in the slightest. Um, it's just daft and I didn't really get a lot of tension or anything from it. Let's say there's interesting ideas buried in there. Um, the, the sort of dream transmission thing in particular. The practical effects work, again, for the most part, uh, common to most Carpenter works that no complaints with it at all. They're all actually pretty, pretty, pretty well yeah. done. Um, still all all, today. Apart from that, the makeup on the um, father the woman at the end. That's yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's sorry, Scott. I don't know this before you mentioned it, though, but it's, um, I don't know if it's because so much of her eyeballs are seen. Mm. Whether it's that, but it just it just looks so comical. But yeah, sorry. Carry on, please. Uh, no, it's pish. 
Um, <laughs> does Don Muchmore say about that? Uh, but yeah, some very wild overacting, uh, clunky dialogue didn't really build any atmosphere for me. It just it just got silly by the end of it, and uh, I wasn't really affected by it in much of a way at all. Yeah. Mm. Yes, not not convinced by it. Uh, thank you, drive through. We can still be friends, uh, which leaves us then, Drew, with they live. It does. I'll talk about that, shall I? I think you probably should. During an economic depression, drifter John Nada, Roddy Piper, arrives in Los Angeles looking for work. After striking lucky at a construction site, he meets Keith Davids, Frank Armitage who had also arrived in Los Angeles looking for work to support his family in Detroit, and travels with him back to the shantytown where he stays. Nada's curiosity is piqued by some odd activity at the nearby church, where he discovers some odd scientific equipment and numerous boxes full of... sunglasses of all things. After the shantytown is bulldozed by the fascistic authorities and the church burned, Nada returns to the building and retrieves some of the glasses. Upon donning them, he discovers that he can see... The truth. The big truth. The population is being controlled by all pervasive subliminal messaging in magazines, newspapers, advertising, street signs and broadcasts. Consume. Obey. Sleep. Do not question. And those doing the controlling are seen to be, to humanise, some damn ugly aliens. Though without the special sunglasses they appear as any other human. And for why are they controlling the minds of the native population? For the dinero, the lucre, the cash money. Why else? They want to change the Earth's atmosphere to better match their own, asset strip it and move on. They are aided in this by human collaborators who are handsomely rewarded with temporal riches and who are so blinded and manipulated by their greed and short-termism they either don't think about or don't care about the eventual impact on Earth or humanity. John Carpenter's social commentary in his Reagan era They Live may be compelling, may be pretty much inarguable, but is delivered with all the subtlety of the proverbial half brick. <laughs> Still, that lack of subtlety does not in any way hinder what is a truly entertaining movie, and watching Nad and Frank attempt to bring down the alien domination machine and reveal the truth to the world is one hell of a fun ride. Yeah, this is, um, apart from the thing, the one um, John Carpenter film that always held up for me, that I've returned to quite regularly and just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. Thematically, it is probably his boldest, isn't it? There's no... There's no... There's no, <laughs> there's no there's, layering. There's, there's, no no, there's no subtlety to this message about sort of rampant, unchecked capitalism emboldened by manipulation of of, uh, of uh, popular media. Uh, and I... While I finally... I've, all the times I've watched this movie, I've really, enjoy, I've really enjoyed it. And only recently couple of years ago when I watched it most recently did I start to feel like I was experiencing diminishing returns because mm. there's something so entertaining about taking that fundamental a message which if anything feels more relevant today than it ever has and probably than yeah than probably than Carpenter could ever have envisaged that would have done and dressing it up in clothes quite this stupid um, um, full on 50s B movie 
Um, oh, beyond, beyond production. that, yeah. It's Which is just... why so great the black and white kind of truth scenes look exactly mm. like 1950s B-movies. It's so perfect, but sorry. No, 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 it's fine. Um, it, it is the purest distillation of all of its elements, I think, possible. Um, and it marries them together in quite sensational form. And it's... It's not one of those movies you're in any doubt as to whether you should be taking it seriously or not, although it is addressing quite the most serious issue of recent years. Um, it's presented in this format with, you know, with a former wrestler in the lead role and with the script that it's packing as well. Um, I just, I, quite spectacular spectacularly nonsensical and absolutely enjoyable piece of entertainment as I think I've I've ever seen to be honest with you I think after all these years I think when did I first see it I probably only first saw it about 14 15 years ago I think you know and I sort of the absolute antithesis of Big Trouble in Little China I immediately got why people <laughs> raved about this movie and yeah, I don't know what to say other than it re- it remains a, f- a fantastically entertaining slice of of um, entertainment. At yeah. the risk of repeating the word entertainment, sorry. It's yeah, it's another sort of high quality John Carpenter B movie. He's the king of B movies. It feels. Oh God, to me. but though Drew, this is all. This is a C movie. <laughs> this is a C movie. Yeah, this is almost. This is almost at a sort of Ed Wood level of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, it's almost it's, competent. Yeah, it's like so. It's so bizarre. It's stripped of everything that would make a B movie a B, B movie. Almost, it's it's lower than that, but it's married to something that is topically so uh, prescient. Um, yeah, it's just it's so thoroughly entertaining. That's the thing. Mm. Again, it's it's Carpenter's trademark efficiency. It doesn't run particularly long. This film, yet, it still manages to spend ten minutes on a brawl in an alleyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which is a really entertaining problem in alley, but it's like you wouldn't think that's even possible in a film with this running time. And <laughs> yeah, when you think about that in terms of percentages, it just yeah. shouldn't work. And then yeah, Roddy Piper, who I may have never seen in anything. I else. haven't seen in anything else. And it's like I was always aware because I watched They Live for the first time a long, long time ago, and then uh, at the time I watched it, I was aware that Roddy Piper had been a wrestler. Mm-hmm. That's it. I've been told Roddy Pipes are wrestler. I have no evidence for it. I'll assume people aren't making that up. I don't actually know. Uh, never seems a wrestler. But I actually think he's a pretty engaging presence. Um, I wouldn't really have expected is. that. And to say it's good acting, I don't know if that's quite right, but it's silly. It's, it fits well into the I, film. And- I think that a wrestler dealing in that sort of pantomime theatrical medium that they do was absolutely the right choice for this role mm. because yeah, I think he, Roddy Piper, must have appreciated... Uh, he's passed away now, hasn't he? Didn't he, yeah, he, didn't he pass away a couple of years ago? ago? Yeah. I think he must absolutely have understood this material from the off. Yeah. And I can... I can't imagine anyone else playing it quite the way he does yeah. quite so successfully. He is perfect in this role. As, as perfect in this role as almost anyone has been in any role in cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Keith David's great support, as I said earlier, the role specifically written mm. for him. But yeah, Roddy Piper just does such a great job in getting, thinking, you know, he's, he's a wrestler and was this his first film? Probably, I'm not certain. But that, just when he's sort of walking around, 
through the streets of Los Angeles, half dazed, having just discovered the truth. And I'm like, I honestly don't see how else you could do that better. No. Just to have him looking so discomforted and confused, but not just like gurning and mugging about it. Mm. And then mm. there's the this is an actually quotable Johnny Carpenter film, um, whereas I, which I understand the quotes <laughs> from it. And it's really hard to see I mean, the classic bubblegum line. Most people who quote it actually quote it wrong with completely the wrong speed and emphasis. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to see how many people could actually have delivered that line any better than him. And just, It's a ridiculous line. It sounds great coming out of his mouth. It's possibly the greatest line in cinema history, and I'm not even... <laughs> um, I, I am 75% serious when I say that. It is the most perfect deployment of the most perfect line in the most perfect situation ever. <laughs> it's testimony. It should be utterly ridiculous, but it works and he delivers it just so well in a way that's not... It's not like he's making fun of it. It's not being knowing or anything. No, it's exactly. And it's perfect testimony to how self-aware this material is, how aware it is of its own nature and its purpose and how it is being how it is being served to us. Yeah, just, just when you think you've got... All the answers. Roddy Piper changes the questions. <laughs> it is, however, lightning a bottle. I've seen a few of the other, um, mainly low-budget sci-fi stuff that appeared in as well. And yeah, the, 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 have, I think one and done would have been the best approach for this. Have you have you seen Hell Comes to Frogtown? No, I'm right. Sure. That's the only other one I'm aware of. <laughs> And I really want to see it. <laughs> but yes, uh, other than that, I'll just be repeating everything you said. It's, I really, really like it. Um, it's the thing's a better film, but I like They Live More. It's, it's probably my, been my favourite John Carpenter film for as long as I've known about John Carpenter films. Uh, I, uh, it's just a tremendously cheesy, yet at the same time quite uh, quite important social message at the same time. It's, it's a very strange combination as you put upon. It's just the juxtaposition of that and and the fact that people are suplexing each other for a good good quarter of the runtime. it seems like. Makes for a very interesting and very entertaining film. Um, yes, I am going back to this a number of times and I'm always heartily in, enjoyed watching it. Uh, yeah, it, it, again, really basic and efficient storytelling and it does everything it needs to do really well. Uh, yeah, I love it and I think everyone should watch it. You get no argument here. Abu, we all done? Uh, yes, that, that's us for today. Um, bar some feedback on Twitter. Right, so some feedback from at Sonic Yoda on Twitter. Uh, he thinks the thing is probably his favourite horror of all time, and he's not really a fan of the genre. The sheer display of craftsmanship makes it fascinating, and some of the most incredible puppet slash model work on film. Big Trouble in Little China feels like it shouldn't exist. Oh, I wish that were true. Um, it, it's way too prescient. A parody of martial arts movies shouldn't have happened so close to the big martial arts boom. It's, I think it's just a bad movie, not a bad parody. Uh, it feels like it, it feels like it did a better job than Kung Fu Hustle or, or Kung Pao, but close to twenty years before them. I entirely disagree with everything that you say. <laughs> Certainly about that. Okay, Michael Christie at Mikey VNB on Twitter. I'm just saying, um, Prince of Darkness, vampires in the mouth of madness are very underrated, in my opinion. I guess Scott would disagree with the Prince of Darkness bit and I know Craig would very much disagree with In the Mouth of Madness mm. <laughs> which was yeah. in his words gash <laughs> recall for our discussion last week yeah. although just carrying on in general with John Carpenter feedback Tengushi at Tengushi said and talking of another film um, Craig um, and Scott have both decried and I have fortunately not seen him in Ghosts of Mars, Ice Cube running down the road on Mars, firing a gold-plated Uzi in each hand, screaming as he goes, is the greatest moment in cinematic history. <laughs> Rosebud. 
Who said that? Tengushi. We'll take that uh, comment uh, in the good humour that it is intended. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> At Blake writes, one of our friends from the I'm the Host podcast, um, Prince of Darkness, which I noticed actually earlier, he, is this only just earlier today or yesterday, I think he sat down to watch this for the first time, which was somewhat serendipitous, Yes, uh, I noticed in his Twitter feed. Uh, I liked the conceit and style, but it didn't feel like the ideas were properly baked in. Remove the central conceit and uh, not much really changes. That's a fair comment, I think. Liquid transmission got silly with repetition. Yep. The yep. signal, 2007, does <laughs> a better job with gradated infection and madness. It's a fair comment. Might be interesting to compare contrast with phantoms. Don't know. Um, positive. Always love me a good team debris scene. Positive. The one true faith. Alien to all others. Uh, you know there was an Old Testament before that one, right? <laughs> and problematic demonising of homelessness, mental illness. Oh no, because you can. The woman looks out of the window at Prince of Darkness and apparently can tell by looking at them that every member of that group of homeless people is schizophrenic because it's uh, painted on their forehead or something. Have you never had to diagnose schizophrenia before? Oh yeah, I I tend to look out the window and I can see it, yeah. It's it's easy enough. Fucking hell, put the glasses on, Drew. (laughs) Uh, Felt like a retread of Assault on 13 with zombies. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. (laughs) Seeing lots of echoes in the void now. Uh, I've not watched The Void. I think that was a film that sort of popped up on people's radars either early this year or later last year. Uh, I've never quite got round to watching. Uh, A certain sector of the film-watching populace seem to quite enjoy that. I might try and pick up on that. Psychokinesis in 80s equals hypnotism in 30s. That guy really looks like Alice Cooper. Credits roll. Oh. (laughs) Uh, no, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad for that. I, you can always kind of count on uh, Blake to have some sort of insight that you probably haven't considered before. That's one of the things that I appreciate about the podcast that he is a part of. So, uh, thank you for that feedback. Yeah, he also, uh, because Blake has a lot to say often, um, he's like me in that regard because that's sharp, which is great. I appreciate it. So. Yeah, but he, he's worth listening to. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> And he also said, yeah, just again, in general, Carpenter, I have no consolidated concept of Carpenter. I like a lot about a lot of his work. I'm grateful that he gave Zizek a pop cultural allegory for ideology and they live. And um, he does love talking about Zizek uh, and love his snark about the thing's cult status, i.e. what good does that do me now? Halloween, Mouth of Madness, they live in the thing and they're slightly lesser extent Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China are all infinitely memorable yeah, incorrect for or <laughs> <laughs> incorrect like I saw um, Big Trouble in Little China a couple of days ago I remember not one single piece of dialogue but okay and my memory's amazing uh, though I might nitpick craft here and there the thing might be its most complete or tightest work um, perhaps most complete certainly my favourite although I think mm. we're probably fairly well in agreement that Assault and Precinct Assault is the tightest. I think is its tightest yeah yeah yep 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 um, but I, I, mm. I will listen to an argument either way uh, mileage will vary always uh, and what else have we got here Dead Ringers, Dead Ringers pod let's talk yeah. about Prince of Darkness Oh, right, okay, cool. So Dead Ringers pod start talking about Prince... It's interesting that Prince of Darkness seems to be one that people want to respond to quite a bit. It certainly started getting its due, but has been an underrated carpenter. In terms of pure mood, atmosphere and nightmare logic, it's tops. So, yeah, I I, um, I lean toward that, I have to say. Um, I'm not sure I would say it's even the best example 
of those of Carpenters. Maybe the nightmare logic, yes. Maybe not so much the mood and atmosphere. I still think other films of his do that better, but I think that's a very valid point, and I appreciate that input, certainly. And so what does mirror, while I'm disappointed to find I don't enjoy it as much as I did before, when we were discussing this, Craig and I were both saying... Which, cover, which films to cover Craig and I were both saying that we always thought The Prince of Darkness was very much underrated mm. definitely um, I still think it's one of his I think just, just to look at Carpenter's canon I still think yes it is one of his most underrated films definitely Scott do you want to take the film and swearing one? Right, two more from the Films and Podcast Boys. Firstly, Stu, who's at FAS Podcast, uh, doesn't think Twitter has enough characters for the amount of thoughts he has for Carpenter. He adores his work, and saying that he's yet to see Ghosts of Mars, don't. And the ward, watched half an hour of it earlier, seemed entirely generic so far, but maybe more of that next week. Um, uh, also asks if anyone uh, is going to be attending the UK tour in October. Uh, did not know that was a thing. I might yet look into that, but uh, I very much doubt he'll make it all the way up to the darkest controls. Uh, in short, He's made some fracking good films, though, because hmm. we are not the Films and Swearing podcast. <laughs> and to write off from Mike Christie, uh, from 1980 to 83, he had a consistent thread of work with The Fog, Escape, The Thing, and Christine. Him and Dean Kundi were forced to be reckoned with. I have never seen Christine, and I forget that that's a Carpenter joint off the back of a, a King joint. Yes, not convinced that I've seen it myself either, but I'll try and rectify that over the coming week or so. I have seen bits of it that I know. I've got very clear images of the car, but um, beyond that, I don't have any strong feelings about it, so I suspect I've not seen all of it. Hmm. Um, Yes, maybe to be remedied. Yes, so um, unless plans change, we may be back with you for the next podcast with a bit of a quickfire roundup of all the other Carpenter films we've not discussed here, maybe in a bit less detail, but uh, just firing through some of them. Uh, Unless plans change, we are very fluid in that regard. Uh, But until that time, we will bid you adieu. We would be most grateful if you'd come and talk to us or give us any feedback through a number of methods. Why not do it on Twitter? That's at FudsonFilm. Do it on Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsonFilm or send us an email podcast at FudsonFilm.com. Come. Or to be honest, guys, turn up at the door, come in, have a cup of tea. Let's <laughs> yes. go out. Get me out of the house, please. <laughs> so, um, yes, until such time as we meet again, I will bid you adieu. I've been Scott Morris. I'm sure that Craig Eastman was Craig Eastman. I can confirm this is the truth. And also that Drew Tavendale was mostly Drew Tavendale. Unless I'm the thing. He's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a really great double bluff? I can't, he's outside in the cold, I can't see his breath. There's no catch light in his cold, dead eyes. Bye bye. <laughs>